0: If you would, just be praying that this thing doesn't go down again like it did last week. Um, I've got some things that I'm going to try to prevent it from doing that. Um, but if it does, I'm sorry, and I will try to get it reconnected as soon as I can. But you all have to just bear with me. And also, um, so this week we're talking about the fall and sin and death. So basically, over the next 35 to 40 minutes is going to be a lot of me just telling you how awful you are. Okay, and so I want you to know, I love you. I love all of you. Um, and the the funny thing is, is that tonight I'm, we're talking about sin and death. It's weighty, heavy. It's not really fun to talk about. And then Sunday, I'm preaching because Pastor Stevens in Haiti, and we're going to be looking at "Blessed are those who mourn." So. <laughs> Just be praying for me that I don't go into a depression this weekend as I'm studying all this stuff. Um, but, uh, anyway, so we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna get started with this study. There's a lot of, uh, heavy, deep things that we're gonna talk about. Um, but there is some, there is some good in all of this, um, that I hope that you see. So anyway, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, as I've studied this week to prepare and to understand, the depth of our sin and exactly what it means that we are sinners um, and how that relates to you as a holy, just, righteous, pure God. Um, I'm just left in awe, Lord, that you would have such mercy, that you would have such grace upon such awful, terrible people as us. Um, I pray, God, that you would give us grace to understand this I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the depravity that is within us so that in light of that, we can see just how holy and righteous and good you are. Pray, Lord, that you would show up tonight, that you would speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um... We're going to be looking at a ton of Scripture tonight, okay? And then the main reason is because I want the Bible to kind of speak for itself on this issue, okay? I don't want to get up and just say what I think about sin. Um, and, and actually, that's what kind of what I've been doing with all these classes. If you notice, I, I put up so much Scripture on this TV is because we need to be people that develop our beliefs from the Bible and from the Scriptures because that is the way that God has primarily revealed himself to us and has revealed knowledge about who we are um, is through the Scriptures. And so as we go through each one of these classes, our only source and our only um source of authority is going to be the scriptures, So that's why there's going to be a lot of scriptures up here. Um, and don't feel the need to like write down every single thing that goes up here because I'm making, for those that don't know already, I'm making my, outlines and my PowerPoints available online to download. So if you go to the church website, all these classes are recorded and they're uploaded on there and you can download the outline and the PowerPoint. So if you, if you're just burning your hands trying to write everything down, uh, don't do that. Um, you can pay attention. Um, and you, if you want, you can go later. Uh, so tomorrow this will all be posted um, and you can go later and you can download all that information uh, there so that you can have. So, All right, so sin. Um sin is something that is it is very important for us to understand because the what we understand about sin affects and relates to the way that we what we believe about a lot of other things in our theology. So like the nature of God, Um, if God is a very high, pure and holy being who expects all of his humans, all of his human creation to be perfect like him, because he says, be perfect for I am perfect. Um, then even the slightest deviation from that standard that God has set is extremely serious. But, if God is imperfect or if he's lenient in regards to his punishment of sin, then sin isn't really all that big of a deal, right? Um, like our doctrine of salvation. Um, if a human is basically good with intellect and knowledge and, we, and we're good morally, essentially, then really whenever we tell somebody to be saved, the most that we could tell them is, hey, you just need to learn a little bit more about God. You just need to come to this understanding of God and then you can be saved. But... If it's true that we are completely corrupt to our core, um, then our message is, no, you don't just need to know more about God. You need to repent and be born again. So what we understand about sin weighs a lot on our doctrine of salvation. Um, so, and then the, that, that applies to many other areas of, of study, many other areas of theology. Um, but uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read the account of the fall. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, I'm going to, uh, there may be one underneath your seat there. Um, but, uh, and I'll, I'll read this out loud. So we have God, he created Adam and Eve. We talked about that last week. He placed them in the garden. He put the tree of life in the garden and he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And God said, you can eat of any tree in this garden, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. and made themselves loincloths. This is where we see the introduction of sin um, into humanity. Um, And what you notice is that the very first thing that they did is they realized they were naked and they were ashamed and they tried to cover themselves. Um, And that has been the history of humanity ever since. We realize what we are. We try to hide ourselves from God. Um, There's just kind of an inner shame that every single one of us carries Within us, we know that we 've done something wrong, we just can 't quite put our finger on it, um, but we 're going to look at exactly what it is uh, today. So the Bible there are several scriptures um, that talk about what sin is, and that kind of describes sin, so we 're going to look at, at several different ways that the Bible talks about sin so that we can better get a full picture of a good definition of sin. So th- the first thing that the Bible refers to sin as um, is ignorance. Ignorance of who God is and what he requires of us. We see this in Ephesians 4, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Um, it, is, it is ignorance of God and who God is, is the reason why we are separated from him. Another way that sin is defined in the Bible is as error. These are faults and incidents that simply should not have occurred. And oftentimes errors refer to mistakes made that go against what the natural order dictates. And this is seen in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Another way the Bible describes this sin is inattention. Sin is described as disobedience resulting from not paying attention to what God has said. Hebrews two verses two through three. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore, if we don't pay attention to so great a salvation, probably the most common, uh, mention of, of sin and the description of sin in the Bible is missing the mark. This is, it's the most common biblical use of the term sin. This is an archery term. So like when they would pull back and they would shoot, how far they missed from the very center, that was how much they sinned. That's what sin meant. And so sin basically means missing the mark. Um, it's the most prominent the most prominent and clear use of that term is in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark of God's glory. Sin is also described as, as unrighteousness. And a lot of times this is what it's referred to as in the New Testament. It's a failure to meet up to the standards of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6.9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sin is also described as a transgression, which literally means to cross over. So God has drawn a line in the sand. He said, you must not cross this line. And we have done exactly that. That's a transgression. Numbers 14, 41 says, why have you transgressed the Lord's command? Why have you disobeyed the Lord's command? Sin is described as iniquity, which basically refers to a lack of integrity. It's a failure to maintain a straight and narrow lifestyle, deviating from the path of righteousness and justice. This is seen in Leviticus 19, 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great but judge your neighbor fairly. To do otherwise is considered iniquity. This is sin. Sin is also described as rebellion. This speaks of our seeking to usurp God from his power over us. Isaiah 1-2 says, I reared children. This is God talking. He says, I reared children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. Sin is described as treachery. This is a breach of trust. Oftentimes in Scripture, it, it it's used in the terms of a spouse being unfaithful to their spouse, um, and we see this in Leviticus twenty six forty. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility towards me, he goes on to say that that he will heal them. Sin is also described as a perversion. Perversion means to bend or to twist. This is in Titus 3.10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And probably the greatest, most harsh term used to describe sin is an abomination. Um, word, that word is used to describe something that literally in the definition, it causes God to revulse basically. Um, some sins that God himself says are abominations are those of idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 25 through 26. Homosexuality in Leviticus 18 verse 22. Wearing clothes of the opposite sex in Deuteronomy 22 verse 5. Sacrificing children in Deuteronomy twelve, thirty-one; And witchcraft in Deuteronomy 18 9 through 12. So we, we see what all of these instances and these descriptions of sin are in the Bible. And it's really kind of overwhelming because look, the thing thing is, if you haven't been ignorant, you have committed an error. If you haven't committed an error, you are guilty of inattention. If you're not guilty of inattention, then you have missed the mark. If you haven't missed the mark, then you are unrighteous, and if you're not unrighteous, then you have transgressed. If you've not transgressed, then you are guilty of iniquity. If you're not guilty of iniquity, you have rebelled against God. If you've not rebelled against God, then you have breached His trust, you've committed treachery against Him. If you've not done that, then you have perverted something, and if you've not done that, you have committed an abomination. All. But the, the truth is, all all of us have committed every single one of these things. And this is only just a, a small glimpse. I mean, this isn't every single definition that the Bible offers. I mean, there's like 60 to 65 of them. Um, every single description of sin that the Bible puts forward, it, it, is, it is in one way or another, everything that we do is some kind of affront to the holiness of God. That's how serious this is. So in working a definition of sin, we come up with this. Sin is any failure To conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, or in attitude, or in nature. So, Those three different spheres of act, attitude, and nature, those can all be supported um, from many different scriptures of the Bible. You can you can pull them out from the Old Testament and the New Testament to support the fact that sin is a failure to conform to the moral law law of God in act or attitude or nature. But there is one specific discourse in the New Testament where all three of these um, are seen very clearly, and that's in Mark chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn there. Um, But if you don't, just pay close attention, and I'll throw the, the most pertinent verses up here on the screen. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is then expelled? And thus by saying this, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. So if you notice in um, verses 21 and 22, there's a list that Jesus gives. Um, this, the first list that we're going to look at is in uh, verse 21. These are specific acts of sin, Okay, he says evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder adultery, coveting, and wickedness. These are things that we actually do. In other words, these are what we call sins of commission. We commit these sins. These are things that we actually do. And this is something that condemns all mankind in terms of what we do. The scriptures testify in many places of the universal sinfulness of all of mankind. We see this in Psalm 143 verse 2. No man living is righteous before you. We see this in 1 Kings eight forty-six: There is no Man who does not sin also see this in Romans 3 10 there is none righteous no not one we are guilty for the things that we do but not only are we guilty for the bad things that we do but we are also guilty of the good things that we don't do this is what we call sins of omission we are guilty of the things that we don't do. We see this in James 4, verse 17. Anyone then who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Do you guys remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, you have a man who is stranded on the side of the road. He's been robbed. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. You have a Levite who walks by and he ignores the man. And he carries on. You have a priest that walks by, and he ignores the man, and he carries on. But you have a Samaritan who walks by. And this man, although an enemy of this stranger, um, he cares for him. He picks him up, puts him on his own camel, takes him to a hotel or an inn, puts him up, gives him money, and says, look, take care of him, give him whatever he needs and anything else that he needs. Whenever I return, I will repay you for that. And Jesus says, which one of these proved to be the neighbor? He says it was it was the Samaritan. The Levite and the priest were guilty of not doing the things that they ought to have done. They were guilty of the sin of omission. They did not care for their neighbor like they should. So not only are we guilty and we are condemned for the things that we do, but we are also guilty and condemned for not doing the good things that we know we ought to do. Our acts condemn us. But also deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These are attitudes. These are inner dispositions of our hearts and our spirit. These are the way that we conduct ourselves, attitudes that we have. Our attitudes condemn us, Jesus says, and they are produced by our heart. The fact that we desire to do these things and to follow follow these things makes us sinners but also what what did we say sin was act attitude and nature we see nature in here mark verse 21 and verse 23 for within out of the heart of man all of these things come from within and they defile a person it's not as though some parts of us are pure and some parts of us are good rather Every single part of our being to the very core is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, our goals, our motives, our attitudes, even our physical bodies. This is what Paul says in Romans 7 verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. And we also see in Titus 1.15 says that to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. And moreover, in Jeremiah 17.9, uh, he tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? To the very core of who we are, we are rebellious against God. To the very nature Of our souls, we are evil, we are wicked, we are sinful. So we are condemned by the things that we do. We are condemned by the things that we don't do. We are condemned by the attitudes that we carry. And just by our very nature, we are condemned before God because we are evil. So the results of all this, (laughs) I mean, is is utter chaos. Look again at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful. Okay, so our heart deceives us. James one twenty six. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. And this man's religion is worthless. So we have our hearts that are deceiving us, our wicked hearts. And we have our wicked tongues, us, ourselves, that are deceiving our own heart. So it's just this constant back and forth, this ping pong, this chaos of sinfulness. You see Paul talking about this in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. That's sins of omission. But I do the very thing that I hate. That's sins of commission. We see him talk about this again in verse 19. For I do not do the good that I want to do. Sins of omission. But the evil that I do not want is what i keep on doing so you see it just it just goes back and forth um and he he can't get under he can't get out from under it and he says 721 verse 23 so i find it then to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand for i delight in the law of god in my inner being but i see in my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body and it is After understanding all this, the complete utter chaos of sin that reigns within us, that pulls us and pushes us, we deceive our hearts, our hearts deceive us. We want to do good and we can't and the evil that we don't want to do, that's what we constantly see ourselves doing. You can see why Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Utter and complete chaos. That's what sin causes within us, within our hearts and within our souls. Another result of sin is that we cannot, we're completely unable to do any spiritual good before God. Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews 11, verse 16, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without, if you are without faith, you are in your sin. Isaiah 64, verse 6 tells us that all our righteous deeds, are like a polluted garment. We are completely unable to do any spiritual good before God. Everything that we do is corrupted by our sin nature. Another result of sin is death, particularly spiritual death. That's what we're going to talk about first. Genesis 2.17, God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you shall die. Now, obviously, this didn't mean immediate physical death because they didn't immediately physically die. But what it did mean is that the potential for mortality that Adam and Eve had, that became a reality. They did become mortals. They could have lived forever if they would not have done that, but they did. And so now the the potential of morality that they have became actual. They were now going to die. Um, but spiritual death is what is immediate from all of this. It's, it, that's a separation from God. Um, and you see this separation immediately take fruit whenever Adam and Eve try to hide themselves from God. They're ashamed to be in his presence. They separate themselves from God. But we also see this talked about all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 59 verse 2, But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear. We see this also in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Spiritual death is what he's referring to here. And then probably most, um, clearly of all is Romans 8, 6 through 7. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Spiritually, we cannot do anything good before God. We are spiritually dead, but also a result of sin is physical death. Um, This is obvious in just what we see around us. People die. People close to us die. But it's also a proven fact in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. All people are destined to die once, and then after that, they face judgment. Paul in Romans uh, 512, he attributes, he attributes death to sin, particularly the original sin of Adam in the fall that has since spread to all mankind. Yet while death entered the world through one man, that's Adam, it spread to all men because all sinned. And we see that that death was something that was pronounced as a judgment upon man by God. Whenever he cursed them in Genesis 3.19, he says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Eventually, Adam's body would decay. And he would just rot right back into the dust that he was taken from. Physical death um, is most clearly seen in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. This is the most common verse that we hear talking about what the penalty and the result of sin is. Now, another result of sin, this is a big one, suffering. All suffering that we experience in this world is a result of sin. All of it. Genesis 3.16, this is part of the curse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. So pain that's involved in that process, that is payment that women are paying for the fall. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There There is a natural order that God has designed marriages to work. And whenever we don't do that, because we're sinners, we don't do that. You see constant strife, marital strife. You see adultery. You see um, divorce. And you see all the pain that it inflicts on a family. This is a result of sin. Nothing else. To the man, to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, meaning that he did not listen to the voice of God, he disobeyed God, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground until the day that you die. So man was initially given the charge of cultivating the garden, right? Work was a good thing. He said, take what you see here in this garden of Eden and go out and you make the rest of the world look like this. God gave Adam work to do. And that's what he was supposed to do. But then the very work that God gave Adam to do, he cursed that he cursed the ground that Adam was to cultivate. So this is why you see men that toil in their labors and, and never seem to get quite much satisfaction from it. Um, we toil and we labor, and this is suffering that is induced upon us because of our sin. Now, some of our sin is deserved, I mean some of our suffering is deserved, and some of it is undeserved. We see this in first Peter chapter two, verse 19 through 20. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit? If you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Um, There is just suffering that we endure because of our own failures, our own mistakes, our own actions, and there's unjust suffering that we endure. We do not deserve it, Peter says, Um, we see suffering in the world as a result of sin, either your own or someone else's against you. There is suffering that we experience because of our own sins, such as addiction, family and marital strife, poverty due to financial irresponsibility, etc. There is suffering that we experience because of others' sin against us. I'm thinking of codependency and abuse, things like that. And there is suffering that comes just from living in a fallen world. Think of infertility and physical and mental disabilities that people suffer Suffer from. These are all symptoms of sin. Sin causes all societal problems. And we see this in James chapter four, verses one through two. What causes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire and do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. Every single societal problem that we have is a result of sin. Every single war that has ever been waged is a result of sin. Um, Even creation itself was subjected to futility, meaning that creation was subjected to sin. We see this in earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes. None of these things were supposed to happen, or at least if they were, they weren't supposed to be destructive and evil and cause pain and bring destruction. Um, Those things weren't supposed to happen. So we've talked about sin, and we see the evil that sin is and and what it causes. Maybe are you beginning to grasp exactly what it is about us? Exactly what it is about me, exactly what it is about you that the only payment would require the God man to come and die. Do you get a sense of this evil, this wickedness that sin is? Um, had a friend who, uh, he went to, an, he, he went, he goes to DBU, Dallas Baptist University. And um he was participating in a ministry that was ministering to inner city kids. And he goes to the, to these inner city kids. And um you know he's going through Bible college right so he's got all these big terms in his head so he starts to try to explain the gospel to these kids and he says he says look um you know you are completely totally depraved Christ and his in the act of obedience that he bore and his passive obedience to death on the cross there was a great um uh, there was a great exchange that took place you know the imputation and these kids are like what and so he says okay um all right so um you guys are are living in sin and Christ was perfectly righteous. And these kids are like, what? And I'm like, dude, elementary kids. You're trying to talk to elementary kids. And so he just broke it down completely. And he said, look, you suck. Jesus doesn't suck. Therefore you need Jesus so that you won't suck. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> the weight of sin the fact of sin is that, yes, we are evil, we are wicked, we are depraved. as we 've seen, this infects us to the very core of who we are. We are condemned by the things that we do, we are condemned by the things that we don 't do. We stand condemned before God because of our attitudes. we stand condemned before God because of the very nature of who we are. But what i don 't want you to think, and what i don 't, what you cannot believe is that God is not sovereign over all of this remember our definition of sovereignty god has absolute control over creation as king and total control over all that happens everything that means everything god's sovereignty encompasses every single thing that happens now we just looked at romans we just finished on romans 8:20 for the creation was subjected to futility right This tells us why, not willingly, but by him who subjected it. God is the one who subjected creation to futility. God is the one who allowed sin to infect all of creation. And we know that it was God, and a lot lot of people will try to argue that this was Adam because Adam sinned and plunged all of us. No, we know that it was God because right after this he says that it was Not willingly, but by him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would also achieve the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. Adam had no understanding of the freedom of the glory of the sons of God that was to come. Only God could see that. God is the one who subjected creation to futility. This is seen in God's interactions with Pharaoh. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And we understand that what Pharaoh did was a sin, constantly condemned by God as a sin, and he was punished for it. But God says, I'm going to be the one that's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, listen, listen. I I understand the tension here, okay? I understand how hard of a pill this is to swallow. That is not lost on me. Okay. The words that we use whenever we talk about this are very, very important, very important. You know, for example, we cannot say that God created sin. This flies in direct opposition to his holiness. Nothing evil can proceed from God, but instead we understand from uh, an, an exam or a definition or an illustration given to us by St. Augustine is that evil and sin is not necessarily an entity in and of itself. It's just a privation. It is a, it is the lack of something. It is the lack of God's holiness and his goodness. So this isn't something that proceeded from God. This is something that proceeds from a lack of God where his presence is not. That's where sin is. And we cannot say God tempts me to sin because this flies this idea is rebuked by James in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You can bank on that, and you can trust that. So whenever we, under, whenever we try to apply the sovereignty of God to matters of sin, rather we could say something like this, God governs all things in this world, And even sin is not outside of his control. Okay. We could say God rules the world and everything that happens in it. That's kind of related to the definition of sovereignty that I gave you earlier. Or we could say that God foresees all that will come and he can stop anything as he pleases from happening or he can permit it to happen. And if he stops it or permits it, he thus controls whether it happens or not. That's what I mean whenever we say that God is in complete control, in complete sovereign, even over human sin. So this is based on several, several scriptures. If you ever get a chance to read all the way through the Old Testament, it is amazing the references that you see to events carried out by God in which people were punished for those things because they were sins. Um, but we're not going to get into the All the depths of that, because they're everywhere, if you're looking for them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But we'll look at a few verses here. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. All things means all things. So this is our starting point. Um, Joseph's brother's. Um, in the Old Testament, if you remember that story, they sold him into slavery, right? Um, and they sinned. That was wrong of them to do so. But both Genesis and the Psalms teach us that this was planned and ordained and brought about by God himself. It says in Psalm 105, verse 17, God has sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God sent Joseph into the position that he was in. God put him there. God led him through that. That was part of God's plan. And then we, you know, we... In Genesis, uh, I think chapter 45, Joseph himself says the same thing. Like this is a quotation of what Joseph says. Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says, God sent me ahead of you. And then, of course, the verse that a lot of us probably already know, Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Listen, God meant it. God did not rework it for good. God did not, you know, con- control it and somehow bring it around for good. God meant it for good just as much as they meant and intended to sell Joseph into slavery, God meant and intended for Joseph to be sold into slavery for a good reason. God is sovereign over these issues. Um, we also see this, um, and, uh, and th- th- this is really interesting here. So God told David, do not take a census of the Israelites, right? Do not count them. Do not number them. 2 Samuel 24 verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he, the Lord, incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. God told David, don't do this. But then you have God inciting David to do it. So David goes and he does it—the thing that God told him not to do, but that God incited him to do. And you see, David. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, "I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly." Now, in a parallel account, this is in this was in Samuel. Okay, in a parallel account in First Chronicles. This is the same story. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. David's reaction. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, Again, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So, in in two separate accounts of the same exact story, we have that God inside of David and we have that Satan inside of David. But David takes full responsibility and blame for both things that happened, because he was still guilty of these things. This shows us God's sovereignty over Satan and what he allows him to do. We also see this in the story of Job. God says, yes, now you can go and, and tempt Job. Only do not take his life. God gives Satan permission on what he can do. There's another instance where these the, the prophets are um, the, the the prophets of Baal, right? Um, God is desiring to frustrate the the words that these prophets are saying, and so the the imagery is painted of the host of heaven gathered before God, right? And but the angels and 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 demons and everything, and God says, "I need one of you to go be a lying." Voice in the mouths of these prophets and there's an angel or demon that says, hey, I will do it and God says you will succeed now go and do this. God commanded for a spirit to go fill the mouths of these prophets so that they spoke lies and because of the lies that they spoke God brought destruction upon the prophets of Baal. God is completely sovereign over this now in in the most. The most clear picture of this and the one that when you really think about it really makes the most sense. Of course, this is seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28. Peter says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, Herod's or, or Pilate's purple robe that he put on Jesus, predestined and planned by God. The things that Pontius Pilate did, announcing him guilty, trading him for Barabbas, giving him to the people, predestined and planned by God the soldier's crown of thorns placed upon Jesus Christ, the beating and the mocking and the spitting predestined and planned by God. All of these, all of this was sin. All of this was wrong. The greatest sin that there ever was, but we understand that it, it had to take place and that this was predestined and planned by God himself. God is completely sovereign over human sin. now, J.I. Packer, wonderful theologian, he wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, how these two work out. And he talks about this problem. He talks about this this tension between human sin and God's sovereignty over it. And he said this, he said, Seeming contradiction exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are sufficient reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery to know how they can be squared away with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. Two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt, but there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. What the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. And this, therefore, is the position that we must take in our own thinking. Somebody once asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will? And and Spurgeon said, what do you mean? I don't reconcile friends. Because that's exactly the relationship that exists between our free will and God's sovereignty. Is they are friends. They work together. How do they do that? I I don't know. Now I know. I know the question now is: Well, if God is good, and if God is holy, if God is righteous and He is just, how can He even allow sin in the first place? And how can he be sovereign over all of this and control and order and ordain all of these things to happen? But, but the thing is, listen very closely to me. The greatest, most fundamental truth about what God's purpose is, is not that he is out to show every single person his love. It is that he is out to show Every single person his glory, and there are many 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 aspects of his glory that we would not have known or seen had sin not entered the picture. think of god's wrath this is this is a, a character of his trait, a character of his being that he desires for us to know because it is glorious, it is righteous, it is true, it is pure. He wants us to see this. Think of His of his holiness. If we had never sinned and sin had never entered into the picture, we would not be able to understand exactly how holy God is. It is only until you understand the depravity of sin and the evil and the wickedness that it is that it darkens the contrast and you see wow, in light of this, man, I understand your grace. I understand your holiness, exactly how good that you are. We, we would not understand His goodness. We would not understand His patience and His long-suffering with us. We would not even know that. God would not even be able to show that to us. If sin was not in the picture, we would not understand his grace. We would not understand his sovereignty. There are many parts of God that cannot be known apart from sin being a reality. So is this mysterious? Yes. Is it incomprehensible? Of course, and I know that. But is it beautiful? Yes. In every way. Um so that concludes our discussion of sin. Next week we will be talking about Jesus, who <laughs> which is the solution to our sin, and I know you're all glad to get there. Um so we're going to open up for Q&A. Um again, I want to say I know that this is hard, trust me. <laughs> I've been sitting in my office and sitting at home for like the last week and the beginning of this week just studying nothing but sin and evil, and wickedness, and it has done a number on my spirit, <laughs> um, but I know what's coming. I know what's coming next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, and 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 I know the reality that, that we all live in as saved and redeemed children of the Lord, and I understand that, and I celebrate that, um, so um, I feel, and I sympathize. Okay, so now we're going to open up for questions, Q&A, ask any question you like. Yes, Rich. Oh well we we talked about death and we talked about spiritual death and physical death as the result of sin. So yeah, and there's there's more in there about like the resurrection and all that, which we'll get to that uh three weeks from now when we talk about the resurrection. So about we are whether or not, still have Yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and the, the testimony of Scripture flies directly in the face of that. And scripture tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. Because there is nobody who's righteous and God demands perfection, he says, be perfect, for I am perfect. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed that mark. And it doesn't matter how far you fall short of that mark. You've still fallen short. You have not measured up. But praise God for Christ who measures up for us where we cannot. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Any other questions? Yes, sir. We had a situation about 15 years ago, and this Mm -hmm. is kind of, I think, what helps me understand the righteousness of God versus him allowing other things to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wayne was the pastor then, and he he told the deacons, he said, there's an issue that needs to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah he does he does and that's that's a good point to make what you always see and and, and that's why i'm so glad the parallel account of david being incited to do the census shows that satan was involved in that um just as god told the the lying spirit to go be a lying spirit um god himself never actually carries out this evil that's what james says Nobody is ever tempted by God. Nobody can say that. That's wrong. That's false. God is holy. No evil proceeds from him. But he can see something that can benefit somebody in the long run, and he can allow it to happen. Now, uh, great illustration for this. Um, so, Lila, right, my daughter, she's two, or she's almost three, actually. Um, she has to get shots, Right? Um, and she does not like shots. And so I pick up, I'm her father. I'm her loving father. I love her more than anything in the world. And I pick her up and I take her to the doctor and I hand her over and they hold her down. And even I hold her down and they prick her and they hurt her. She screams and she cries and she looks at me so confused. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why is, why are, why are you doing this? She doesn't understand. All she knows is that she's in pain and she, and she doesn't understand why she wants to be free from it. She wants me to take her out of it, but I'm helping hold her down. The reason being is because I love her and I know what is on the other side of this is so much greater than the pain that she is going through. Paul said it this way. For I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what Paul says. So, God does these things and he allows these things because he loves us. And he knows. Now, now understand. That situation with me and Lila, that was me and one other person in one small area of space in our lives. God is orchestrating all these things on a cosmic scale. Okay? Every single person that has ever lived, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. That includes our suffering. And if he's going to work those things, he's going to allow them. He's going to ordain that they happen. He's going to permit them. He is sovereign over them. Now listen, think about what does it mean if God is not sovereign over your sin and God is not sovereign over your suffering? What does that mean? It means one of two things. One, you're going to, if you say, okay, look, God is not sovereign over this. This is just the devil. This is, then your only hope is that Satan's just going to let up, right? If God's not in control of this, if God does not have his hand over this, then you're saying, Satan, please stop. That's not going to get you very far. Or you may say, okay, you know what? I have the power to pull myself out of this. God's not sovereign over this because he loves me. He would never want this to happen to me. He loves me. So I must pull myself out of this. Has that ever worked for you? No. The comforting thing and and what you want to be true is that God is in control of it and he knows when to pull you out of it and he will and that he is working it for your good. I'm sorry, I started preaching. (laughs)